To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So today's a good one. Well, I think they're all good ones, but today especially, I I really like getting the Eastmans on the podcast. Both Guy and Ike have such huge personalities, and um, Ike's just one of those guys that's really fun to talk to, really fun to hang out with. Um, eventually, I want to share a camp with him in the hunting season because the guy's just a riot. You're just laughing the whole time, and um, he's just always got something to add or a, a great story to tell. So uh, really excited to have him back on the podcast. Today is a theme podcast all about sage bucks, and there's nobody that knows better about sage bucks than the Eastmans. And, and Ike, he is a – so Ike and Guy, they hunt elk, um, but they're really mule deer fanatics. They love mule deer. And already this year, Ike has put down two really good mule deer bucks. I think he killed one in Colorado and one in Wyoming. Um, I believe they're both sage bucks. Um, so he's just got a ton of knowledge, and, and it's just a great conversation as we break down sage bucks. And uh, I'm going to be hunting them hard here. I just got back from a trip with my daughter. I'm going to try to do a short podcast um, about that one. And so I'm just getting started. The deer just starting to come into the rut and definitely starting to come into the pre-rut. So this is just a timely podcast to put out to you guys. A great conversation with Ike Eastman. I really enjoyed it. I know you guys will enjoy it too. Sponsor for today's show, uh, Zamberlin Boots. Zamberlin is just building great boots. I really think they're building the best boots on the market. So I started using them a handful of years ago, and uh, they actually discontinued a boot that I really liked, and I was a little disappointed, but they replaced it with a boot that's even better. So um, let me find my notes here. Um, the boot that I'm running is a 320 Trail Light Evo GTX. This boot is super lightweight, uh, but rigid enough, good grip on it, good for side healing. It's got the perfect amount of flexibility for me, and it's just a great mountain boot. It's a single-piece leather design. It's waterproof, plus with the single piece, you just have less seams to rip out. Uh, you can waterproof them, you know, with uh, whether you're greasing them or putting oil on them. You can get the waterproofing throughout the boot. Um, man, they just worked really well this season. The other shoe that I'm like, you guys know what a fan I am of tennis shoes. Zamberlin built one for me, or they didn't build it for me, but it feels like they did because it's just a great tennis shoe. It's their 103 Light Hiker RR. Same thing uh, with the single piece leather design. They're they're water resistant, and then you put a little oil on them. They're pr they're waterproof. They've got a Vibram sole. They're just like a burlier shoe that are built for the mountains. It's going to hold up a little bit better than than some of the more inexpensive trail shoes that are out there. So uh, I'm just in love with their products, in love with their company, and thanks to Zamblin. Um, I also want to thank Technu. Uh, Technu just has uh, um, some great products. You know, I, I love using their product. They've got um, their Technu Original, which is good for poison oak and poison ivy. This stuff is just good to have around the cabinet. Once you get into this stuff, you'd do anything to have some Technu lying around. So it's just good to order it now and have it for that summer season of poison oak, poison ivy. Um, it'll also remove oils and greases. So if you get some sap on your shirt, the stuff will take it out. 
Um, Ike used it to wash his car one time when he drove it through a, a puddle that had a skunk in it and sprayed the whole bottom end of his car. He put it in a pressure sprayer and then sprayed his whole car to get rid of it. So if your dog ever gets into a skunk, like uh, you guys probably know that tomato juice doesn't work real well, uh, Technu does. It actually removes the oil from the skunk smell. So it's got a bunch of other uses. It's just good to have around the house. So uh, when you do need it, you have it handy. And thanks to Technu for sponsoring the podcast. And with that, um, it's been a fun year. It's been fun. Um, just caught up with uh, Brandon Mason on kind of his elk season and uh, hunting with his kids. Uh, just a great conversation with him. Caught up with Scott. Um, really looking to get a couple of these guys on the podcast and uh, make a run over. Um, it's amazing, but we're looking towards our, our 200th episode here on Eastman's Elevated. Uh, I'm just so humbled at the support and how well this podcast does. And I just want to continue to bring you guys the best information and, um, Man, it's been a good hunting season for me. I've uh, been going hard and had a ton of time, and uh, it's just been really fun, and it's fun to share that journey with you guys. So, yeah, just want to continue to bring you guys good information. I think, um, gosh, I've got to talk to Scott and figure out what we got for Beyond the Grid. I know we got some great episodes coming out, but if you guys haven't checked it out, go to Beyond the Grid on our YouTube channel. Uh, I have a caribou hunt on there and I'm going to have more hunts that'll be coming out on this, this internet platform beyond the grid, but make sure to check it out. We got some great episodes out there and some great ones coming up for you guys. Um, so make sure to give some support there. Uh, great magazine articles. I have a bunch of them coming out that I've written throughout hunting season. I made all my deadlines and, um, you know, I really write from the heart and you know, that's that again, it's another, it's a fun platform to to be able to dive into. Like, I love this podcast and saying what's on my mind, but with that writing, I really get to think and craft what I want to say and how I want it to sound and how I want it to read. And I, I really enjoy it. And then you guys know my love for photography, so I love sharing all my support photos, harvest photos through those articles and really building um, a good layout. Uh, so I, I really enjoy it. I got a bunch of articles coming out, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal, and two with those journals, if you get a subscription, you get the MRS Members Research Section, Research Supplement. I always forget. It's Members Research Section. It's the MRS. It's in the back of the magazine. And we just break down every Western state and tags available for rifle and bow and units. Uh, it, it's such a huge advantage um, for applying for different tags in different states and just helps get you a, a overall general understanding of what's going out all out west. And so I use it as a tool nonstop to pick what units I want to apply for, what hunts I want to try to get, you know, both easy to draw units and the, the tougher to draw lottery type, you know, once in a lifetime hunts I put in for those as well. So it's just a great tool. It's in the MRS. Uh, we'll be starting it up here again at the, the end of the year where we we have an MRS in every magazine, but it'll start ramping up as these states start hitting their deadlines for applying for those tags. And so right now is a good time to get in to get all the newest current MRS research done in there. So uh, make sure to check that out with our magazines. And um, with that, let's get this thing rolling. So uh, this is me and Ike Eastman. We're talking Sage Bucks. Eastman's elevated. Here we go. Okay, I'm live here. I've got Ike Eastman on the line. We're kind of catching up here, and um, I've got him on today. 
I really want to do an episode on these mid-range bucks, these sage bucks. So, you know, you can hunt mule deer in all these different habitats, but um, they just thrive in this sagebrush. And, and the minute you see a giant br- buck in the sagebrush, you'll forget all about the high country. So <laughs> I, I thought this was perfect for you. You do so many sagebrush hunts a year. Um, thanks a bunch for being on. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And and hopefully I can speak educated about this subject. I've uh, been around it a while. I'm, I wouldn't consider myself extremely successful, but uh, I've, I've been doing it for many years and I've learned a lot of lessons, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, there's no shortage of lessons learned out there. Those bucks just have a knack for outsmarting you, don't they? Or outsmarting <laughs> they, all of us. They do. Well, you're living, you know, you're, you're, you're hunting them in their living room and uh, not a lot of people could outsmart me in my own living room. And uh, you know, that's where you're at. And it doesn't matter if you're in the high country or if you're, you're in a river bottom or if you're in the sage country or, or, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Actually, it doesn't even matter what species you're in. Um, you're talking about you're, you're, you're hunting them in their living room and they know every, every ounce of it. They know every sound. They know, you know, where things are coming from and what's on the other side of that Ridge way better than you would. So, Gosh, they do, and they just they hone their instincts for the country they live in too. So just like yeah. you said, like anywhere they live, and and that's where mule deer are so great to hunt is they get so good at living in a small space and not being picked up, not being seen, and, and then um, just not being noticed. They just want to be yeah. in the folds of the land and kind of run their program, and nobody ever really sees them in there, and they're good at it too. Yeah, that's that's no kidding, and they've adapted. You know, when my when I first started hunting in Wyoming, you could be four. You had to be 14 when you first started hunting. Now it's 12, but back then it was 14. Back then, the, the deer were right in that transition period, and uh, you know, I used to hear stories from my father and grandfather telling you know that they'd jump a buck. <clears throat> Heck, they used to drive for deer way back in the 50s and 60s. You you'd find a, a you know a big sagebrush knoll and or or an aspen grove. And they just send two guys in there like a bunch of bird dogs and they drive for those bucks and the bucks would jump up, run 30 yards, stop and look at, look at you. And you had time to shoot. I don't do that anymore. Um, very rarely. If, if they do, you're hunting country that, that those deer don't have a lot of pressure and not just human pressure, but predator pressure. Now, uh, a lot, a lot of times those deer, if, well, if you do that, you never see them either they leave a lot earlier than you ever see them or they'll tuck themselves up underneath something and you'll walk right past them like two feet past them. I have some footage of, of, uh, my dad, he's hunting sagebrush and this deer's laying in the sagebrush. Of course he doesn't realize he has like 180 inches of bone sitting above his head that made him stick out like a sore thumb in the sagebrush. So you can see this buck and my dad gets out and he gets all ready to shoot this deer and the deer won't stand up, won't stand up, won't stand up. You know, it's, it gets to the point I'm talking minutes. It gets to the point where we're going, is the deer standing up? Is that spray sagebrush taller than we think it is? And you, you go through that whole rigmarole. And finally I start walking towards the deer at a quartering, you know, quartering uh, away from him. So the deer thinks I'm walking towards him. Of course I'm not in the line of, of shot or any of that. And finally, that deer won't stand up. I get within, I, at this point, I said, I told my dad, I said, well, don't shoot. Let me see if I can just get him up and we'll, we'll 
see where he goes into the next base and he'll he'll probably go do this again and the buck stands up finally and i'm like 40 yards from this deer and i'm making all kinds of racket i am not sneaking i'm trying to get him to stand up at this point he stands up long enough for me to get out of the way my dad to shoot him stood there and looked at us like what is going on i did not expect you to know i was i was laying here and in through the footage you can actually watch that deer as the noise increases, the deer's head gets lower and lower. Come to find out that sagebrush is only about three feet deep. He had laid his head completely on the ground. He, he was as flat as he could get on the ground in this sagebrush, thinking he was, he was hidden. And then when he stood up, of course, he had a great shot. But it was, you know, the deer have changed. They aren't jumping up and running 30 yards and looking at their backtrack. Yeah, that's it. They used to have that reputation, didn't they, in the 60s and 70s, and that was the heyday for mule deer, and it was, you know, there's no doubt that it it was the best mule deer hunting around, but I also think they were just easier to hunt, like you say. They didn't feel so much of the human pressure on them, um, and, and guys could drive around a little bit more and see more mature bucks, but... As the years go on, the, these bucks, you're right, they start to adapt to this hunting pressure, and the hunting pressure, you know, it's it's probably their number one predator, you know, us us or a mountain lion, one of the two. Right. But, yeah, they learn to adapt, and and I really think in this sage country is where they've adapted the most because it's it's the easiest country to hunt. Yeah, well, and, and I think, you know, I think their number one predator is a mountain lion or, you know, as an adult deer. I would say the number one predator for deer, for mule deer, is coyotes, but that's when they're fawns, when they're young. But as an adult deer, you know, the, the mountain lion is, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the the West was almost eradicated of mountain lions due to poisoning and and you know the the uh, the country had, had gone through World War II and they were they were you know they were trying to save gas and they were trying to trying to build as many wool blankets as possible to send to the the troops and so they had sheep and cattle all over this country and they were taking out the predators in in you know trying to keep their livestock rolling to keep this the war effort fed and uh, when the when that stopped in the 60s and 70s and the the predators started increasing again and the, the balance was coming back to more of a a not not very much but more of a non-human factor uh, those those deer had to adapt, and they were adapting by by trying to, you know, stay calm and stay quiet and stay within hidden, and uh, you know that that's how they do it, and that's that's how they've done it now, 90s and and even today they've been doing this for a long time, generations of it. It's fun to watch them though, you know, change and adapt. As people, mule deer are very very delicate. In fact, in my opinion, they're one of the most delicate. Uh, wildlife big game species out west um, maybe even more so than sheep i know there's a huge argument you can argue either way but the mule deer population population is in trouble out west and you know i sat through a bunch of game and fish meetings this fall about what they're going to do in our area and uh, it was one of the hardest hit areas in wyoming not just the high country but the sage you know the sage country right where i live they're having trouble with these deer surviving and the two main factors, of course, there's not one. If there was one, we'd fix it and move on. If it was just hunting pressure, fine. Let's don't hunt them for two, three years, a generation, and, and get back to where we were and go back at it. But that's not it. It's a bunch of different factors, everything from 
urban sprawl to predation to hunting pressure to them getting more not the game and fish management getting more knowledgeable on where the deer are coming from <clears throat> they found out recently that they were shooting deer in the late season here and in, in around uh, where i live they were shooting deer that migrated all the way over from region h and region g so these poor deer started getting hunted with a bow they started getting hunted the first of september and then rifle the 15th of September, and they, as they migrated, they just keep hitting hunting seasons all the way until, you know, November 15th, where they're, they're out here in the plains at 120 miles away across two huge mountain ranges and, you know, some of the most, the largest wilderness in the lower 48. And they were getting hunted for two, two months. And they didn't know that because they hadn't ever been able to have collars on these does and stuff like they do now the technology has allowed them to put a collar on them and track them and so the knowledge their management style is changing and their management style is getting better and that's helped the, the or it will help the deer population um the predation is you know they're getting a little bit more aggressive about the coyotes on the on the fawn grounds which is a problem um i don't remember the statistics that they shared with us but it's the coyotes are a serious problem on you know fawn retention and, and recruitment it's it's a real problem for like the first 30 days those fawns are on the ground basically when those fawns get you know they're born and the first 30 days where they're not running from predators they're laying down and hoping to use their skills and their you know their god-given talents <laughs> i.e not not being able to be uh, smelled etc cetera, etc cetera. i can't remember the number that a uh, a single coyote will take down that for that 30 days, but it's astronomical, astronomical. And so they're trying to do some coyote predation uh, control hunts before that fawning. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's changing. It's moving. It, it always will as is wildlife management. So it's, um, hopefully they're, they're going in the right direction. I believe they are. And for those of guys out there, you know, if you hear these things that are going on in your area or your hunting area, make sure you show up. Show up and give your opinion. It was it was so well orchestrated. We actually got to sit in a meeting. They they unveiled all the statistics and everything that they found, and then we broke into small groups. There was like five of us in in each group, and they I don't know, I think the one I, had, I went to was huge. There was over a hundred people at this thing, and you know five people in a group, and and they asked you, uh, I think there was five questions, and and you got to answer them. You got to give your opinion. And that stuff mattered. They, I saw things that they changed that came out of those groups, which is huge. That means it's not them, them, the game and fish, thinking they, they know everything. It's putting it into the people that are in the field and putting in the people that, that really are concerned about it and their way of life depends on it. You know, there's outfitters in that. There's guides in there. There's there's guys that have been hunting, you know, they hunted the heyday. A lot of those guys have been hunting the heyday and saw what the good was and what it is now. And uh, it's important. So get out there and, and participate in that stuff. Because if you don't, they're going to do their best bet. And as, as times change and people migrate into those positions that maybe don't have your, your, your specific interest in mind. So get out there and give it to them. Don't be belligerent about it, but give it to them constructively and come with some good valid points. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love how the management is changing and evolving right in front of our eyes because 
the the mule deer um you know they their populations across the west they're not doing as good as they are but you know you talk about them being a sensitive species and they are they're really sensitive to predation to winners like elk winter way better than a mule deer oh, yeah. will winter you know and and well, like you, you say elk. what's that you can feed elk. You can put elk on a, a feed ground and they'll survive. Uh, unfortunately, you can't do that with deer. That's right. I know. Deer, they're, 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 you know, if Brandon, Brandon Mason was sitting here and give you the whole spiel from a biologist standpoint, but a deer, their, their stomachs change in the fall and they go more to a, a like a sagebrush type um, <clears throat> forage. Mm-hmm. And you can feed them alfalfa. Those deer will sit there and they'll die with a full stomach because they can't digest it. Crazy. Yeah. So it, it, it's good that we're adapting our, our management practices and good that the public gets to put in their input. And you're right. We all need to get involved to protect the species, because what's nice is that, you know, they they do they can thrive in, in a, multiple different habitats if just mm-hmm. given the right conditions, you know. Yep. And so you can find them across all these different Western states and tags for them in a lot of Western states. And the mule deer are doing very well in a lot of different places. There, there's just a few places and and a few herds and like your your migrating herds there in Wyoming and the harsh winters that you have that really have trouble. And so that's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know that that winter is a huge factor. You know, we had a really weird winter this year. It was it was in the 60s in February, and then or in January, and then the 15th of February rolled around, and it got below zero and stayed below zero through March, and got I mean I haven't seen this much moisture ever ever in this country. We we there's green grass still on on the desert floor, and it, usually that's gone by the 15th of June. And it's still green grass. And so that late winter, they they're not sure because we haven't been studying and haven't been around long enough as a as a as a educated species, I guess we don't know how that's going to affect the deer. And uh, they did they went out to do their winter range uh, counts, and it's a it was a disaster out there because of all the snow, so it didn't look good. Well, you know you hope the deer mule deer are unique because they they rut so late and then they go right out of that rut in horrible shape and get right into winter and uh, try and survive that. Well, this year they got out of the rut and they had two months of really nice weather, no snow, no cold weather. And it was, you know, lots of feet on the, on the winter range and they were happy and fat um, later into the year, which hopefully got them through that winter. Um, But it's, yeah, the winters are a big thing here. Big thing. Well, and, um, you know, in the drought down south, they finally got all their moisture down there. So the deer have to be really happy down there. They've had a oh, good yeah. spring and summer. Yep. Yep. Well, and it's continuing. You know, the, I was talking to one of my friends in southern Colorado, and he said, the animals are happy. And when he says that, that's a good thing. Because usually, you know, they're, they are feast or famine. If they don't get the monsoons down there, it dries up about now, and that's it. They're done. Um, you know, they have, they, they, the elk don't finish very well and the deer don't finish very well and the antelope, they don't get very tall. And so, um, he said the animals are happy. That means all of the reverse of what I just said. Good. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know I've got some good sagebrush hunts coming up this year. It, yeah. It's neat because the West like offers so many different hunting seasons for them. So being a bow guy, like I get to take advantage of the early season 
I get yeah. to take advantage of the rut and then, you know, even the late season. So maybe we'll start with the early season in this sagebrush. And so you guys, I would say like uh, your Wyoming hunt that you usually do there, um, that usually takes place around October 1st, right? Yep. Well, it's it's been moving around. I've been doing it for, oh gosh, close to 20 years now. And it's they've been moving it around. Um, it used to be the like around the 1st of October until the 20th of October. And then they shrunk that season, but they didn't shrink it off one side. They shrunk it off both. Um, now it's uh, a 10 day season. And I think it opens like the 10th of October and ends like the 20th of October or something right there. Um, but it used to be earlier than that. And uh, which changed things because the early season, those deer, you know, they're still in summer mode. They might be traveling a little bit, getting, you know, you know, because of storms, early winter storms or something like that, but they're still in the winter or the summer mode. You'll find them laying around in the, in the sagebrush knobs and, you know, they'll have these big, huge beds trying to stay cool. Uh, my brother had a footage of, he was archery hunting in some of the country we've hunted a lot. And, uh, he was archery hunting. I think that opened the first of September. So he's down there, probably the second week in September. And um, he shot his biggest archery buck ever that year. Well, actually, I think it took him two years to do it. But he found a bed up underneath some alders in the sagebrush that the sagebrush was 10 feet tall. And these beds, you could fit three adult mule deer inside these beds. And the beds, they were they, were, they had to have been 100 years old. They were, they were all sand, soft sand, huge you know it looks they had been kicking it down and for i mean it was a pit on the side of this hill and you could walk right past it and never knew it was there it was crazy guy laid down in it it was it was like almost seven feet in all directions it was huge and it was completely covered you couldn't see it from the air the only way you could get in there is guy followed some tracks in there thinking that maybe the buck he shot at uh he wounded and so he went in there and uh, didn't end up finding any blood or anything, but it was crazy how big that thing is. And so, you know, just that knowing that you got to watch those deer um, <clears throat> first light and last light and find out, you know, after first light where they're heading. And if you watch a deer disappear into a hole, he's in there somewhere. And so you have to be able, when you come back that evening, be able to set up to ambush him depending on the weather and depending on the wind it's kind of like whitetail hunting in a tree stand. You got to be able to, you know, predict the wind, which direction it's coming from, and set up to ambush, you know, him. And it won't, he won't be alone that time of year. He'll have two or three other uh, bucks with him, and uh, be able to ambush him and and just do it over and over. Now, if you booger him too much, he's going to leave. He'll have he'll have two or three of these these hidey holes, is what my dad used to call them. Um, and you just have to go find another one. But that's that's a really good strategy early. Um, you know, when we're in there the first of October, it's kind of similar, but they're starting they're they're starting to become more bachelors. They, they don't have they don't have these groups of deer, these bucks. They'll have maybe one or two tops, and then uh, um, they're kind of in the same mode. Now, as you start to get towards the end of October, that middle towards the end of October, it's when they start staging, is what we call it, and those those deer will hit a certain elevation and, you know, usually it's around like farm fields where the does are hanging out and those does will be, you know, hanging out on the farm fields. They come out 
late and or come, come out early and stay late and they come out early in the morning or the afternoon and and you know they kind of hang out and so these bucks will start staging themselves within you know a mile or two of that farm field and every couple of days they'll run down there run through the herd yeah i've seen that i got film of this they'll run through the herd and sniff around and see if the rut's starting to kick off or what's going on and then they run back up to their little hole and they'll sit in there and so kind of watching those does that time of year and and see if you can catch one of those bucks i missed a just an absolute toad one time we were actually antelope hunting and, and it was an area it's not general anymore but it was an area back then that the deer season was general and i had a general tag deer tag in my pocket i was planning on using on that um later hunt and i watched this buck we, we were driving down this two-track road and there's this deer laying underneath this little scrub pine or scrub uh uh, uh pinion pine and I mean, we just about died how big this deer is. And that deer jumped up. We stopped, threw the glass up. The deer jumped up and ran across the little two-track road and into this creek bottom. They were starting to get middle of the day. I was like, well, shoot, I don't think we ought to do anything with that deer now. I said, let's come back this evening and see if he's in there, you know, if he's come back or, you know, calm down. And so we came back that evening. And I had that deer, I, I had that deer at 200 yards and I was so excited that I tried to shoot him offhand because it was, it just all happened. You oh, know, the, no. bucks, <laughs> the bucks standing up against a, a washed out bank on a dry river or creek bed. And he's standing there looking me, looking at me with his head down, like, ah, please don't see me. Please don't see me. Please don't see me. I got so excited. I tried to shoot him offhand and it, the dumbest thing, one of those it's one of those moments, Brian, I'm sure you've had these that will eat me the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> when I'm dreaming about, about uh, hunting sage country, that moment is the first thing I think about. Maybe I can find a deer like that this year. And he was, you know, if he was mid 190s if he wasn't bigger than that. Just a freaking toad of a desert buck. And, uh, but that's what he was doing. He was three miles away from some ag fields, and he was him and another buck, and they were staging. And I, of course, after I missed him three times, you know, I never found him again, but that's what they were doing. They were staging off of that, off of that, uh, ag fields. So every year, if I draw that antelope tag, I go back to those ag fields and dream about that. Of course, look through all the deer. It's not general anymore. You got to drive that, draw that tag, but look through all the deer and see if there's a buck down there nosing around and, and where he's hanging out. So it's, it's a strategy. Just keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, you made so many good points there. I, you were spot on. You can tell that you love to hunt mule deer. So you're right, that early season, they've got that lax summertime attitude, that season yep. that you were talking about, guy hunting with his bow. Two years, I remember that big buck he killed with the big yep. backs. And, yep. and I like what you said about the strategy because in that sage country – you know, you can stock in on those bucks and get the wind right, but you can never shoot them in their beds. They always no. have to get up. And so you're almost better off to play like the afternoon evening play when they get up and start moving around and feeding. And then you're yep. close to that bed with a good wind and get a chance at them. So yep. I love what you said there. And then you went into talking about the mid season, like what you guys hunt there in Wyoming, uh, how it used to open October 1st. And now, you know, they shorten it on both sides, but yeah, this this kind of mid-season or pre-rut, um, it, it's also a decent chance to catch a good buck. And they still are kind of running in small bachelor groups sure. or running by themselves. 
and it seems like when you find one buck, you find a lot of bucks. Like those oh, yeah. those bucks like certain drainages, you know. And oh, so yeah. one drainage, you might turn up a buck. There might be twenty bucks living in that drainage, you know. They well, and and not to cut you off, Brian. Go but ahead. We we have places, you know, where we hunt. We have we have we've nicknamed them all. We have a place called the Buckhole, and the reason they call it the Buckhole is because for over thirty years, there's always bucks in it. And why that? There's you know, go down the creek, the, the same creek drainage, you go down the creek drainage a mile, and there's a place that looks exactly like that, there's no deer in it. Never has been. I don't know why. I don't know what the, the uniqueness of it is, if, if it's just something that they're taught over the course of, you know, generations, but they'll, they'll be back in the same spot over and over and over and over again. Yes, I find that same thing. Those bucks like those drainages, and they come back to them in the sagebrush, and I find... Like, you know, we were talking about today's day and age on mule deer. I really find that these older age class bucks, they just find spots away from the roads and away from easy vantage points. And not that you don't look out your truck window as you're scouting or going into an area, try to see some deer, get a feel for a population. But I just find these deer that get to be five, six, seven years old. I look for places on my map that I can just hike off a road and just hike to a vantage point and kind of look yep. at a canyon that not everybody sees, you know, and I, I try to find country that links together in there. And in that, that desert country, you know, sometimes it can be a little sliver of public land that then opens up into a big track and you can't drive yep. in there. And so I'm always looking for these secret little hides to go check out. And that's how I turn them up like that pre-rut. Well, and it's so, you know, we have we have all the advantages as humans. You, you can use an Onyx, like an Onyx Maps program on your computer that transfers to your phone, and you can look at, you know, how the drainage is pouring in there. And you can look at the, the you know, this pocket of timber, I'm pretty sure it's going to hold deer, or this pocket of sagebrush or, or you know, aspen grove or whatever, it's going to hold deer because, look, they can escape this way and get, you know, in, in five jumps they're on the other side of this ridge that, then they're free or they're going to run down this creek drainage and, and you can start mapping that stuff out and putting, putting markers so that you don't have to go walk it and disturb it to figure out how it works. That's exactly you actually, right. You can I, look at it from a, a, above. Yeah. Well, and I start to take it even a step further where I'll mark a mile either side of every road. And then yeah. at the end of every road or every trailhead, I'll mark a two-mile circle, the two-mile radius around it. And I'll highlight these areas, and that'll be where all the pressure is, is around yep. these highlighted yep. areas. And then it starts to unlock like little open places in country where it's like, man, there's no roads. There's no access in here. Yeah. Like I'm going to go in and grab a vantage point and see if I can see that. So you're right. Through that mapping tool, you can build a heck of a hunt plan before you ever yeah. show up. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, that's a heck of an advantage for those guys that use that type of stuff. Yep. Well, and then you got into, um, so I, I really like that topic like that staging as you called it or that it's right before the rut and um i do some of my best hunting at this time of year i love like those late october dates even though even those first uh few days in november and so yep. it's just like the very beginning of the rut and so i catch those bucks like you staging like in groups of does and and how i really find them i notice the big bucks like they're they're almost starting to run with the does in october now you can look at 10 groups of does and you won't see one buck. You don't see yep. one two point, but all of a sudden you look at that 11th group of, uh, of does and there'll be a giant buck with them. So yep. 
you don't see them with every group, but they're just starting to stage and hang around the does, like you said, a mile within. And then they're they're going to find these groups and start running with them a little bit. And so yep. if you look over enough groups of does, there's usually not much hunting pressure. You know, you can turn up a really good buck in that time of year. Yep. Well, and, and it, you know, they don't they won't spend very long with those does. They'll run through that that he you know that buck's probably been through all ten of those groups. But he doesn't do it, you know, he goes through one group and then a day later, two days later, something, you go through another group. And, he's, you know, he's just looking for the right moment. Um, you know, the smaller bucks, they'll have a tendency to hang out with those does early because they're, they're, like, they're like high schoolers. <laughs> they're just, you know, <laughs> they're all dressed up for prom, ready to roll. And, uh, you know, the older bucks, they're a little bit wiser, but they still have the same drive. They're just a little bit wiser on, on, you know, let's not rush this, but I still want to be first in line. I still want to be first in line to dance with this gal. So um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let it go too, too often before I come back around and, and ask her again. So. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I do. I think of like high school boys is two point box. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a two point box that don't know any better full rut, you know, but yeah, they, those smaller, younger bucks, they make mistakes, but those older bucks, you're right. They're crafty. And, and a lot of times, like even during the rut, like all group of, or all glass up a group of does won't see any buck with them. And that buck, he'll cut out that hot doe, and he'll take yep. her by himself and be up above or be yep. 400 yards away. And so a lot of times you'll you'll glass that group of does and think, oh, there's no buck here. And as you continue to glass an hour later, you may pick up that big old rutted buck, and he's just with a single doe yep. way up above him or, yep. or over a drainage. And so you're right, those those older bucks, they're, um, they want to get their breeding in, but they're smart at how they go about it. Oh, yeah. It, it, and, man, I'll tell you what. <laughs> the <laughs> guy and I hunted uh, mule deer in the rut uh, this year, and and uh, he shot a really nice buck. But we we kind of got pinned down and watched this for about four hours uh, one night. We watched this buck chase this doe around, chase this doe around. And of course, we were in a, a position that we we couldn't get any closer than 500 yards, so we just hunkered down in, in hopes that she or he would push her in our direction and we would, you know, cut some of that, that's that, uh, distance off. And that buck chased this door around, round, 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 round for four hours, right before it got dark. She finally had enough and let him do what he was doing. And it was like, wham, bam, gone. He wanted nothing to do with her. She's standing there looking, you know, ears all drooped down and the whole nine yards. And he literally goes back to the rest of the herd and starts cutting another doe. It's like, oh my gosh. There, there's no cuddling there, huh? No, there's absolutely no pillow talk. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, on the same hunt, it was, of course, you know, mule deer run a little bit earlier than whitetail. Towards the end of that same hunt, we were white, I was hunting whitetail, and I shot a real nice whitetail. But those deer are completely different. They're a lot more, uh, you know, it's not a wham-bam. It's, you know, the, the, the buck's do their stuff and then they they kind of hang around and make sure that it was done and the, <laughs> and the in fact the white tail those are like okay get away from me we already did that go find someone else kind of thing <laughs> uh, well that's a that's a great tip Ike that those white tails are more sensual lovers that's funny it was uh, entertaining it was for four hours I mean we were we were literally trying to hide behind uh 
you know, grass that's two and a half feet tall. So we're trying to act like we were bunnies and it was pretty uncomfortable, but it was entertaining as hell. (laughs) Oh, that's well, then that's where that, uh, you know, as you get older, you get more patient with your hunting and you wait for that buck to make a mistake where, you know, if I was in my younger years, I would have ran over there and blown up that whole scenario before it ever came to fruition. So, yeah. And you know, you know what actually happened? So it started to get dark. We're like, okay, it's not going to happen. He's not going anywhere. There's for, there's 40, 40 freaking does in this, and he's looking for another one. So there's another one that's in heat. So we came back the next day, and the next morning, got up early, got there before light, found them. They were they were within 50 yards of where they were that night, but they were starting to move off into some uh, more broken country. You could tell they were going to go up there and bed. We were able to cut them off, and I think the shot was like 75 yards. Guy could have taken it with a bow. Same deer. And and. You know, it's just patience, patience. Otherwise, we'd have messed that whole thing up. And who knows if he'd have got him, uh, you know, it would have messed everything up. Spooked Probably every doe in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was, it was, yeah, patience is, as my dad says, there's three laws in hunting mule deer. Patience, patience, patience. Oh, he That's is it. so right. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, during any of those seasons, it's all about patience and um, you know, really sitting on those vantage points and looking like a lot mm-hmm. of times those deer, they just don't move until that last light. And sometimes they don't move at all until the next morning, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, you always want to be glassing at first light and last light. That's when you get the most movement. But I've seen it a lot of times where I set up and glass at first light and I don't pick out a deer. And then all of a sudden the sun comes over the hill and they start getting up and feeding around and I pick them out. But, yeah. um, those deer are not easy to see in the sagebrush easy either. No, they are they are that color for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and every sage, I swear, if you look at sagebrush without leaves on it, you go, oh, that could just be a sea of deer antlers. It looks, they all look the same, fork the same, wiggle the same. Yeah, they are they are definitely camouflage for that. I've driven, I've literally driven past deer on two track rows, driven past deer that were laying twenty yards off the road, driven past, got to a vantage point, look back and the deer standing there or stands up almost 20 yards from where I just drove by him five minutes ago. Stands up, starts feeding. He laid down, waiting for drive by and stood back up. Man, they can just hide, can't oh, they? Man. They're so good at it too. And yeah. and I noticed too, like I, I'm sure I've walked by uh, hundreds, if not thousands of mule deer bucks over the years, but God, if you just live and die behind your glass and i talk about yep. getting to these remote areas where people aren't glassing or people aren't hunting but i have this one spot and it's almost a, a, a cheater of a spot it's a ridge line that goes out and you drive out this ridge line and then you park you've got a huge drainage to your left and a huge drainage to your right and so guys will go out there and they'll dive into these drainages and these drainages have so many spur draws in them and they're they're just gigantic drainages right and um so guys will drive out there and guys will hunt. There's not a ton of hunting pressure out there, but I'll see a truck or two when I'm out there. But it's amazing how those guys just park their truck and just dive down into those drainages and just start still hunting down through it. And if you set up on that ridge line with your binos and your scope, I can sit there for an entire day. It's amazing the deer I see that poke out and the bucks that I see. And you just get to you get to locate them, and then you can plan a methodical, planned out stock or approach yeah. on that buck, or you know, a planned out setup where you're going to go down there and where you think he's going to come out in the evening, or what'll give you a good angle on him. But just living and dying behind that that your glass from those master vantage points, it's amazing how many more deer you see. 
Well, and, and allowing the, you know, allowing the light to change as the light changes, you know, these deer are hiding underneath sagebrush. So as that sun moves around, they chase that time of year, they chase the shade because they've had enough, you know, fall weather and cool mornings that they've got their winter hair really full on started. And so they get hot in the middle of the day. So they chase that shade, which makes them get up and move around. Uh, the other thing that, that it does is, you know, you can change the light looking into a, a, a you know, a, a group or a, a crit drainage has really tall sagebrush. The light changes and you can pick out better details and better, you know, different things. So just, you know, being patient on those vantage points with good glass that you can handle sitting behind all day. You know, I, I have I have people ask me all the time. So what's the difference between good glass and OK glass? Well, actually, there's good glass and great glass. And the difference is how long you can sit behind it. I said, well, what does that mean? I said, you, you get headaches. If you if you think about looking through the bottom of a pop, well, we don't have Coke bottles anymore. But imagine that looking through the bottom of a, of a beer glass constantly. Your eyes have to strain so hard to focus on things that you'll actually end up with headaches. Well, if you're looking through glass that's 85% clear, you're only seeing 85% of the objects out there. Plus, your eyes are having to strain to keep that 85% in focus constantly. Whereas if you're looking through glass that's 92 or 95% or clarity, that lessens the stress on your eyes, which means you can sit out there longer. Plus, you'll pick out things that... Um, you know, that you won't in the other glass. And so it's, it's, I always, if people go, what's your number one piece of equipment to hunt, hunt mule deer? I say binoculars. Okay. What's number two then? Uh, spotting scope. Well, it's not even your rifle. I said, no, I can shoot a, I can shoot a deer with a, with my grandfather's 30 six. That's a hundred years old. That's not the problem. It's finding them. You, you can't start. If you have the tag, let's set that aside. If you have the tag, finding them is the problem not shooting them rarely anyway so you know it's glass 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 patience 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 man you're so right that's so spot on ike is uh yeah to, to sit behind your glass the first step to killing a giant buck is finding a giant buck and that's yeah. that's going to be your biggest challenge you know it's just locating them and finding them yep. you're right sitting behind your glass and good glass that's comfortable that doesn't give you a headache and that's crisp yep. and the yep. colors are really sharp in it you just pick out more and you made good points about the light and the bedding and also just sitting on a vantage point and letting those deer move around a little bit even if yeah. it's not first or last light those deer still get up and change beds and feed around a little bit it's just amazing what you catch and especially like this sagebrush country that we're talking about or um you know and there can also be pinion and um yeah. gosh pine and everything else in this yeah. mid-range but um it, aspen groves aspen groves gosh they love aspen groves and, but just sit, just sitting behind that that glass it's just amazing they just get up and feed around you'll just pick out different deer there's just so many little folds and wraps to the country that that uh you're not seeing at all but you're seeing a lot of it from where you sit and you just see critters that just move around so yeah it's just the only way to hunt them behind the glass yeah, yeah absolutely you know what's funny you know i was talking about the deer are changing you know with their behavior but i'll tell you what else is interesting Back when we first started hunting this place, there's these huge aspen groves. And I'm talking like 50 acres or 100 acres of aspen groves on a hillside. And those deer used to live in those things. And as the aspen groves 
um, get older and they're starting to die off and then it's just a natural thing, you know, they die off and then they start, you know, they'll regenerate themselves, but they started to die off. Those deer left them. And you find, you find way more deer in the, in the, um, out on the sagebrush flats around the aspen groves than you do in the groves anymore. And, and I, you know, I don't know if it's because they get older, if the deer, you know, get bugger, boogered inside those aspen groves more. I don't know, but it is the last probably five to 10 years, they've been migrating out to more of the sagebrush area, which is really interesting. I, I don't know if there's an advantage there. Oh, that, but, is, that is really interesting. And bucks like um, mule deer, they don't need cover to feel comfortable, do they? They no. can live in the wide open. In fact, I think one of their best senses is their eyes. They like to yeah. be able to see. Yep. That's why you always find them up underneath something and looking out. I think they just like looking at beautiful vistas because it seems like that's what they do. <laughs> You're so right. Um, back up against something and overlooking a, a beautiful draw or, you know, a, a nice coulee or something. Yeah, they just like to look down below them because they, yeah. they figure most of the time it's going to be coming up at them or predators or they just like to look you know, they like to see danger approaching from below yep. them. So, yeah, they, they get good views, and they're not scared to be in the wide open, and they can disappear yeah. in the wide open. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned something. Um, we were talking about the rut, and you were talking about guy's deer, and you said that that buck got done breeding that doe, but there was 40 other does there, and so you were pretty confident that deer wasn't going to leave. And so yeah. – I'm really fortunate that I get to hunt a couple rut hunts a year uh, with my bow and arrow. And, you know, there are some rut hunts around the U.S., but these rut hunts are so fun. Yeah, as these... it, it's almost cheating, really. <laughs> I mean, they, they definitely – You're the only downside I, – I shot a real nice mule deer in Colorado with my bow during a rut hunt. It only You're not really hunting the bucks. You're hunting the does. You have to worry about the doe because he is one-track mind. He is definitely like a, a senior in high school. One-track mind, doesn't matter what's going on. He is, you know, he's got his lip curled and he's wandering around following this doe. So you're really hunting the doe, uh, which can be a challenge because now all of a sudden instead of one or two sets of eyes, you got 40 or 50 sets of eyes and 40 or 50 sets of ears and you know it, that that can be challenging in itself but as far as as the buck himself you just hunt the doe and if you can get close to the doe the buck's in in trouble yeah that's exactly right well and congratulations on that colorado muley i saw that you yeah. were able to harvest that late season with a bow and arrow that's yeah, no that easy fun. feat to like you say the bucks their guard is down but the does their guard is completely on so any yeah. does he's with if you bump any of them trying to get close to him the scenario is yep. over they take the buck with them yep that's exactly right yeah and so as you make that point of hunting the does you're right the rut for me I like to find those those big basins or big drainages that hold 30 or 40 does in them. Yep. And yep. if I if I can chain those together with one drainage and then the next one over has got 30 does, I just know I can go in and check those spots and I'll yep. catch bucks in there and they'll be making their rounds with those, you know, checking those does and checking those groups in there. And it seems like every day during the rut, there's different bucks in those basins. It's just incredible hunting. And so I do that yeah. same thing. I'm looking for those groups of does. You find a hundred does, even better yet. You know, those, yeah. those bucks will just migrate around in there. You find some really good hunting. So that is the key during the rut. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The only downside is if 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 you get into a basin where either he's bred everything, <clears throat> pardon me, either he's bred everything, 
or nothing else is in is in close in the heat, and so he goes to the next base and over where there's you know other does, and so you see him one day, and that's you know that's the risk that we were willing to take. We were pretty sure because after we watched him breed that one doe, he was off onto another doe and chasing her around a little bit. But that's the risk you have is is he breeds everything in there, and then you come back the next morning, he's gone, and all of a sudden you're starting to do you know you're starting to do a search for the next set of of does and it could be the next basin over or it could be five six miles away it could be a long ways away and he did that in over you know in the middle of the night so yeah that's that's the risk it's it's the good and the bad of the rut and you can't yeah. count on any bucks will break all the rules during the rut and so it's <laughs> tough to count on that they'll be in that same drainage or the next one or you know you guys felt pretty confident it was last light there was 40 does there he didn't yeah. want to go anywhere but like you say they'll break all the rules in the rut and sometimes you'll come back and look at those 40 does and that buck will just be gone and like you yep. say he'll be miles away yep yep. yeah it's true um well, man, it gets me excited to hunt mule deer. You got any muley hunts coming up this year? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back down there here in Wyoming and, and hunt that sagebrush country. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm actually, <clears throat> uh, Scott Reekers and I uh, took, uh, he works, he's our digital guy. He and I took llamas into the high country last year. I, I think you, we've talked about that, but we took llamas into the high country last year on a mule deer hunt. And, uh, he and I are going to attempt that again. That was so much fun. And, and it, it was such a success and, and learning the animals was neat. And, uh, you know, in some country that we've been in, you know, a number of years before. And so we're going to do that again. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to hunt Colorado or not. We'll see. Uh, it's, it's an, it's a pretty easy tag to get. Um, we'll see if, if that pans out or not. Uh, but yeah, the, the Wyoming one will be fun. The high country one I'm really looking forward to. And then, uh, uh we'll see what else pans out. Well, it might do, I might be with the, you know, every subscriber to the hunting journal that we have. We take all those names in the subscription and we draw one of them for a free hunt. And, uh, we take them to Montana up into some of that country kind of by where you hunt actually that, that late season, um, in eastern Montana. And we take them on a, on a mule deer hunt up there. So that'll be fun. Um, I always enjoy those those giveaway hunts because you're going with guys that, you know, as, you know, if they're the last guy, uh, he was an insurance salesman um, for the mule deer hunt. The, the guy from California that won the boat for the bow hunting journal. We draw out of the bow hunting journal subscribers. We draw a hunt for them and we take them to Colorado on an elk hunt. And uh, the guy that won it last year. I think he was a lineman for electrical co-op or something like that. Um, I mean, it's just a lot of fun taking those guys that would have, you know, no other opportunity and they're so respectful and so appreciative. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a reminder to me that the majority of hunters are really good hunters and just the salt of the earth group of people in this country um, we've been doing it for well over almost 30 years now, taking these, you know, drawing just random draw out of 30,000 of, of our subscribers or 50,000 of our subscribers. You just freaking randomly draw some dude and, and take him on a hunt. And uh, it, we've never had one go south. Never. Every one of them was just a great, just great people. And uh, that's just a testament to the subscribers we have and the people that are hunters. And so 
know, I tip my hat to all those that listen to your podcast and, and subscribe to the magazine and, and get out there and teach your kids how to hunt, um, you know, and get them passionate and addicted to that. I, I just got done. I was at the national, the world championship elk calling contest and uh, the elk foundation had me come down and, and, uh, um, MC it for them. Yeah. Which is always fun. Cause they have a, a peewees division and then they have a youth division and those peewees are so much fun. Little, you know, the, just little kids like five and six and they're doing their best elk intimidate or, you know, and some of most of the kids that age, they don't even use reeds. They use their mouth, which is really oh, fun. Wow. That's really incredible. Fun. Yeah. In fact, the gal that won, they have a voice division too, where you can't use anything. You can use a bugle tube, but you can't use like reeds or, or anything. And, the gal that won that this year, oh my gosh, I heard her name Shannon something, or Sean, I think. It was unreal. I thought, that girl is better at elk calling, cow calling, than I've heard most cows. I mean, she's <laughs> better than anybody I've ever heard with a reed. I mean, it was insane how good she is, but it was fun. That's always fun. And so, you know, I just applaud those those guys that are getting their kids out there and getting them addicted to the outdoors. If it's not hunting, if it's fishing and backpacking or go shoot some prey dogs, something. Get them outside. Get them all off the screens and and uh, you know do your best to to keep this thing rolling for the next generation so that they have wildlife. Because as you know, the majority of the wildlife, the money that goes to managing our wildlife is from the Pitten and Roberts. Fund, which is a tax on all firearms, ammunition, bows, arrows, all that stuff has a tax on it. And it's billions with a B of dollars that get dumped back into each state to manage the wildlife from that. So we are literally managing our own and funding our own management. Um, in fact, the, the, they just passed, <clears throat> they're trying to pass, hopefully it happens, uh, some new Pitnam Roberts. Um, amendment to allow the states to use some of that money for hunter recruitment promotions so that they, you know, they have youth fairs and try and get these kids involved. Um, you know, the fathers in the field, which is a great organization, but that type of, of organization to help them fund that stuff to, to continue this. So it doesn't die out. Man, I got a rat that, there. Sorry. Oh, that is so great though. Um, yeah, it's um they, like um our our wildlife model is unlike any out there and thank yeah. goodness our forefathers saw what was coming yeah. down the line and set this up for us and now it's our job to to continue to evolve it and adapt it to you know the like we were talking the mule deer species and and try to address the problems that we're having and and keep this wildlife management rolling for the next generation and you're right it just builds good human beings like taking yeah. your kids out into nature it uh you know whether they get hooked on hunting or not but just the appreciation for for nature and our public lands out there and 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 what we have to offer as a country it's just amazing and and we all need to do as much as we can to try to protect it and try to share it with the next generation you're absolutely right yeah and you know the the, the just get them in the out of doors and, and teach them silly things we used to play a game with my my dad was <laughs> he was uh, maybe over the top of this, probably not, because I appreciate it as a father now. But he, we used to play this game. We'd drive down the road, and he would say things like, "All right, what river is this?" And he'd say, "Oh, it's the Shoshone." Okay, what river does the Shoshone flow into? Oh, the Shoshone flows into Yellowstone. 
and then it flows into the Missouri, and the Missouri flows into the Mississippi and ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, that's fine. Oh, what creek is this? And they would, I mean, for hours traveling as kids, this is what we do. And then he, you know, it wasn't just rivers. He'd say, all right, when do porcupines rut? And so, you know, this is way before Google. And uh, we'd, we'd guess and guess and guess. And he would just he'd take those opportunities, probably because we just saw a porcupine or a dead porcupine on the highway or something. And he would take those opportunities to teach us stuff about the out of doors, you know, simple things like why, you know, are, do skunks, I had this big argument with somebody this winter, do skunks hibernate? No, they don't. But people think they do because skunks are, are nocturious. They're nocturnal. So in the winter, guess what happens? The nights are longer. So you don't see them as often as you do in the summer. The summer, the nights aren't very long, and so those poor buggers are just trying to make a living. So you see them more often. I mean, it's it, silly things like that, 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 you know, take your kid out, teach them something. Take your neighbor's kid out and teach them something good in the out of doors. It's, it's so important, and, it, and it'll give them appreciation for their own life, and it'll give them a, a, a sense of awareness, and it'll give them something to fall back on when times are tough, when things are not going well. You know, I just watched a I just watched a, a video that Rocky Mountain Owl Foundation and Yeti put out on how hunting saved this kid's life. I mean, he was in serious he had gotten addicted to some serious drugs. I think it was heroin and OD'd and the whole nine yards. And he found hunting as an escape and realized that he could hunt you know, the outer doors would give him as just as much fun or just as much bliss as those drugs would. And so he's used hunting as a, as a vehicle to maintain his sobriety. You look at that and it, I mean, it, you go, okay, I got to teach my kids to be out of doors. Cause I don't want them. I don't want them going down that road. I want them going down this other one. Yeah. The so, positive road, positive, yeah. little productive members of society, you know, and, and two, they're so hungry and thirsty for that knowledge and stuff that comes second nature to you and I, yeah. they just don't know. And so yeah. like, it's so fun to take my daughter's hunting or scouting or fishing or anything. And, and, you know, 10 things that I forgot, they have no idea about, it. you know, we're just like, uh, my daughter shot her first whitetail last year, my youngest, yeah. she was 10 and, uh, you know, out to the whitetail field, you know, just teaching her how the the whitetails come out to feed and they come back in the thick stuff and this is where we're trying to intercept them and, you know, seeing tracks along the way and which way they're headed and, you know, it it's just – um it's such a great opportunity to fill their head with good quality knowledge of what's around them, you know, and they dig it. They absolutely yeah. love it. And I, I challenge anybody to take a kid, you know, fishing or hunting. And when you get into them, whether it's hunting and you're into deer and you're seeing them or you're fishing and you're catching some fish, it, it is fun. I don't care who you are. That is just plain fun, you know, for yeah. any kid out there. And so, yeah, you just try to you know, share as much of it as you can with the, the next generation coming up. Like you say, your own kids, their friends, uh, yeah. neighbors. Um, yeah. You know, I, I help with the 4-H archery here in town, helping those oh, yeah. kids become better shots and help giving them the tools. But, yeah, just anything you can do for that next generation, it's just going to protect what we all love so much. And let them ask silly questions and let them, you know, I, I took my two daughters uh, on an antelope hunt this year with my, with my wife and we filmed it. We had an absolute blast, but let them poke around in the guts a little bit. What's that? What's that? Can I touch that? Yeah, touch this? the eyeball. That's, That's always that. a big one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, the eyeball, and I swear the stomach is like, what is that big thing? Well, <laughs> let me cut it open. I'll show you what your stomach looks like inside. <laughs> you know, simple things like that. I have one daughter that's like, eh, that looks pretty messy. I mean, I'm not grossed out by it, but I'm not going to touch it. I got one daughter that by the time we were done cutting that antelope, she had blood up to her armpits. <laughs> she had touched and, and squeezed everything in that antelope. <sighs> but How I, cool. Yeah, that's neat. Well, um, you guys film that hunt. Uh, that yeah. hunt. When's that coming up, Ike? Um, I'm hoping that it comes out um, this fall. It'll be probably between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, when we do the the fall, the new TV shows in the fall, um, we got you know 52 TV shows and and uh, there's a lot of content that's in the can every year that that gets spread out across the next uh, 12 to 18 months. We have some cool Beyond the Grids coming up. Um, that's our online TV show uh, that you can get on YouTube. There's one actually that's going to launch uh, pretty quick here, and it's on Audad and Dan Picar and. And Steve-O. Oh, I remember Steve-O. <laughs> that guy's a riot, isn't he? Oh, my. <laughs> and so they went to Texas and, and uh, helped helped eradicate some of those pesky odd ads down there. And and uh, they had a good they had a blast shooting shooting some some pigs and some other stuff. And then, and uh, of course, got some real nice odd ad. And they learned a lot about them and, and you know, where they come from. And, and they're actually an invasive species in Texas. And the, the state government's going in there and just mowing them down. But they're really prolific. And and uh, so that's a good episode. We have some Beyond I, the I Grid. I got a, a podcast coming up with Dan, too. Um, oh, do you? Yeah, we did it. Um, we did one on, on spotting and stalking elk. It's a great podcast. But in it, he was just returning from that odd ad uh, hunt. So we had to talk about it a little bit. Or not had to, but we got to talk about it a little <laughs> bit. But it was really interesting. They look like a fun one to hunt. I'm sure no. the the video, the Beyond the Grid, the internet show is going to turn out really good. And that Steve-O yeah. is an absolute riot. And I know... <laughs> I, I know that's going to transpose over to video too. Uh, that guy's oh, yeah. just funny. Everything he does. They 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 were teasing him. Uh, I'm not going to unla- unveil it, but it is flipping hilarious. <laughs> I, I think I saw the clips about it about trying to sneak him into Mexico. Mexico. That <laughs> <laughs> the little brown dude. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's what he calls himself, the little brown dude. We Brian and I had a blast with Steve-O at ATA last year, and and so many stories I, I that I I will not unveil, but they are so much fun just you know a group of guys sitting around eating dinner and and uh heckling each other so just a blast but uh you gotta get steve-o on there after when you do your hawaiian one <laughs> let him talk hawaii because he's from hawaii i have to i've been in contact with him in fact i'll send him a message and get it lined up yeah i'd love to have him on the podcast he'd be yeah. right it'd be fun to have him and dan on yeah and then kind of have them play off each other yeah, i think that absolutely. would make a good recording Yep. Yep. Yeah. So um, we got some beyond the grids that are in the can that are they're going to come out this fall. Um, some other, you know, DIY type stuff. Uh, they did a prairie dog shoot this year with with a with a uh, up in Montana that was an absolute. That was so cool. You know, they're, they're a lot of fun prairie dog hunting because it, it's you know a lot of action and you really get comfortable. Um, you know, we were talking about getting kids involved with with um, hunting, and that's a really good one once they get a, a couple stages above. But once you start teaching them how to find an animal, a living animal, in a scope fast enough and be able to, to judge distance and wind and, and, you know, take 
take an ethical shot and it just lots and lots of opportunities. Plus it's comfortable because it's usually, you know, it's warm out and uh, you're not far from the truck. Usually you got a nice bench and it's, that's a lot of fun. Even if, you know, if you're teaching somebody new to, to hunting, that's a must do to, to get them used to all of that stuff. Just loading the ammo, you know, in the field and what heat waves, you know, how that affects you and all kinds of nuances that you can't just learn. You can read about, but you can't learn how you react to it or what you're going to do unless you're in the field. And if you miss a prairie dog, it's not a big deal. If you wound one, they're going to die anyway. Um, of course, they're so small, you don't really wound them. <laughs> you touch them and they blow <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you're so right that trigger time, even for yeah. experienced shooters, it's so yeah. good. Um, you know, practicing squeezing the trigger, and like you say. Uh, or like we were talking about earlier, like uh, some of those skills that are second nature to us, those new hunters have to learn, like acquiring a target and uh, yeah. squeezing on the trigger. And so, um, yeah, how cool. That is such a, a great learning tool for guys and for new hunters. Yeah. It's, yep. it's really cool. So, yep. And then we're, we're getting ready to, to film all our hunts this year. I know we got some great tags around the office yes. and then, um, yeah, your editor in there, Todd, he sure is doing a great job with the magazines, both the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal and the Eastman's Hunting Journal. I've been fishing with him a little bit lately. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. He's been, ma- <laughs> he's been making it up here to Montana. I've been having a riot with him, but he is Todd doing is a really good job with the magazine. The subscriber stories um, are super. The And then the, our pro staff articles and the, the MRS it's just a wealth of knowledge for hunters across the West. It just helps you learn these different states and different units. And uh, it, it helps you learn like the – it gives you so much information about the terrain and the wilderness, uh, where the, the Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett trophies are coming from. It just lays out all this information to where you can start to build a folder on each state of places yep. that you want to hunt. So it's just a, a wealth of knowledge. So um, I always say that the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal and Eastman's Hunting Journal, um, I know I've got a couple articles coming up in the yep. next two I'm really excited about. Well, we have a we have some you know great articles, great how-to stuff. Todd's really stepped it up uh, recently with with some sidebars because he's he's taking these stories. It's not just me and Joe go hunting. Um, he's taking these stories and, and able to you know find some tidbits of knowledge in there that that could help. Maybe you know maybe you didn't know this about mule deer or, or something that that guy learned on that hunt because everybody, you me, everybody, we learn something every time we get in the field. And uh, just being able to share that in the in the articles, Todd's doing awesome with that. He's got lots of, of he's got a great staff uh, writers this year uh, or has for quite a while now, including you that that are willing to share their knowledge and and uh, their mess ups and what they should have done better. And and of course the gear reviews, which are huge, we get to play with some of the best gear on the planet and uh, share that knowledge and and our opinions on it. Um, the MRS, we, you know, that's, that's an ever evolving, changing thing as the States change. Uh, we have some big stuff coming this fall in the MRS. I'm not going to share what it is, but, uh, some big things that's going to be a game changer for those of you guys that are, are playing the tag games across the States. Um, we're going to make it a little bit easier for you, uh, 
Free tags for everybody. No, no. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> a shoot tag for every family. Um, oh, did I tell you that? Did I tell you that they're that they're odd ad sheep? No, never mind. Uh, <laughs> no, I think those sidebars are awesome because you can you can learn something from from anyone. And I I love the the staff articles how we we um, spitball ideas and kind of yeah. get together to come up with the best ideas because they're next level tactics that apply to today's day and age of hunting. There's yep. so much just standard information out there that that I feel like a lot of our audience already knows. And so like when doing these articles, I'm always trying to give that next level information that's going to help that that average public land hunter, you know, get a few tidbits or a few tips right. from it that he can apply to his own hunting that helps him be more successful. Yep. Yep. And you know, I've had tons of guys, you know, that my dad's age, 60s and 70s come and say, you know, I didn't learn a ton out of that, but I did pick up a couple things that I'm gonna that, that I'm gonna utilize, and then they'll come back to the show the next year to the sports show the next year and go, huh, you wouldn't believe that actually worked. <laughs> of course, it worked. <laughs> it's not like we just made it up. We're actually in the field testing this stuff and doing it. We're not we're not living in a high rise in Las Vegas t- testing gear. We we live in the mountains. It's they, we test the gear. We actually put it on and go play in the rain and go play in the snow and put sixty pounds on it and go walk six miles and. You know, it's a, it's a little different. Yeah, little different. each and every guy in the office walks the walk. That's for yep. sure. But yeah, yep. we're just putting out some great stuff out there. Um, yeah, I'm super excited for the next year. Super excited to get these hunts nailed down. We're gonna film. I know we're gonna talk about yep. that later this week. But uh, it's an exciting time of year where we all kind of have our tags and hunt plans. And now the only thing left is to cut loose our legs and get out there. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's exciting, but it's almost chaos as we as we finalize that stuff, and then and then we'll go about thirty days, fifteen, thirty days, and then it chaos you know happens. And uh, I didn't kill anything on this ten day hunt. I need two more days. Yeah, but that's gonna cut your other hunt short, you know. Or I I thought it was gonna take me seven. It took me two. What do you want me now? <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> Rearrange and and uh, adapt and and overcome. We do we do a good job because of people just like you and. And the guys here in the office and our team team does a great job for for a company that's been around 30 years. And the amount of content that, that we punch out of here is is mind numbing, really is. Yeah, so, we have the best team out there for sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I can't thank you enough, Ike. That was a, yeah. a great podcast, a bunch of information about hunting sage bucks. I know yeah. I'm going to find myself in the sage this year and you are too. Um, yep. Yeah, hopefully we can turn up a good ones and uh, turn yeah. up a good one, and hopefully our audience can too. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully these guys got something out of there that uh, makes them a little bit, a little bit more successful in the field. And and uh, hopefully, if if you didn't, or if you have a, a, an idea or a thought, you know, shoot me an email, and and uh, we can definitely discuss. Always, always curious. So. Yeah, likewise. Um, thanks Appreciate again, it, Ike. Brian. Yep. All right, guys. That's. Uh, fun conversation with Ike. He does so well on the podcast. So um, fun to break down sage bucks with him. There's some good tidbits in this podcast. And again, since we recorded this podcast, Ike has killed two great sage bucks. And so um, he really he kn- really knows what he's talking about and just a fun back and forth. And I really enjoy that guy. Um, he's just fun to be around, fun to talk with, and uh, fun to have on the podcast. He's an absolute natural. So thanks to him for taking the time. Um, we'll get the Eastman's back on. Like I say, we're starting to look forward towards our 200th episode. And so, uh, 
I want to get a good get together with the Eastmans and I want to do like an evening podcast, maybe have a, a couple cold beverages. And um, I, I really want to come up with a good theme and I want to highlight like how fun it is to hang out with that Eastman's crew and some of the laughs we have and just try to capture some of that again. So that's my game plan for the 200th episode. I'm starting to send out emails about it now and and want to get that recorded. But I also just want to catch up with uh, Scott and and, uh, Brandon. And Brandon's got some great stories on the season and talks about, well, he talks about losing a bowl and redemption. And so I really want to get him on the podcast. Is that such an important conversation you know, and I, I don't like to publicize, you know, losing an animal. It's like the worst thing that can happen in bow hunting and rifle hunting. You know, I, um, I heard of one in a muzzleloader the other day. And so you don't want to put negativity about what you love, but it's a reality out there. You know, that if you don't hit them in the lungs, heart or the liver, or sometimes you make a good shot and things will deflect off a rib or, you know, weird things can happen. And so, um, you know, it's an important conversation to have. And if this if this podcast is anything, it's authentic. And it and I think that's why we do so well. And so I want to talk about these, you know, tough to discuss subjects and, and these taboo subjects and and have a real conversation about it to help give new hunters, uh, you know, help let them know what to expect. And 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 also you learn from it and become better and also experience hunters like I know all of us hunters have probably been through this situation or this scenario, either blood trailing or, or losing an animal. And so like, it's just an important discussion to have and not feel like you're isolated if something like this happens. And, and also to give you the right tools to, to, to give yourself a chance to find that animal and catch back up to him and, and, and be able to end the hunt right. So there's just a ton of great information in there that I want to discuss and uh, Brandon having this this um, recent story and, and finding redemption with his son. And the whole thing is just a great conversation. So I'm going to get him on too. And uh, yeah, just continue to get you guys some good podcasts and, and uh, good stuff out there. So I want to... I also want to thank our, our sponsors. Man, they are so important to this podcast. They just help pay for my, my time to release all this information to you. I mean, this podcast... Yeah, I have it rolling now, but... You know, it's like trying to do this with another full-time job and a family and my personal hunting. It can get daunting at times. Like, I put a lot of hours into this and a lot of thought. I want to put out the the best conversations, the best podcast I can. You know, I really care about it. And um, it's just nice that these sponsors have stepped up and helped support this podcast and help pay for all the time that I put into it. Um, I just really appreciate it so much. So, um, any any place where we, you know, where you guys can support our sponsors, it really means the world to me. So I want to thank um, all our sponsors, but I want to thank uh, for this episode, Zamberlin, um, just building great boots. I'm loving them this season, and um, I also want to thank uh, Technu. They've been a uh, one of the the first sponsors of the show. Um, they they just have great products and a, a great company, and I also want to want to thank them. So, um, man, just keep hunting, keep recording, keep getting good guests, lining up a couple good ones now. And then, um, man, I'm just, we're coming into mule deer season. So, um, just had a fun hunt with my daughter, an adventure hunt where we went really hard. I'm still half asleep now. I got to get out and, uh, unload my truck here this morning and, um, got to get this deer butchered up. It was, um, yeah, it was, um, super cold yesterday. So I had to, I still got the hide on that deer and then covered it up with canvas and then some blankets on top just to 
to uh, excuse me to keep it from um, freezing so I can get butchering today. So um, you know my garage I keep heated so it's not quite the right temperature to age meat. So um, but yeah I got it all set to go. It's a young one so it's going to be a uh, uh, good eating and I'm just so proud of my daughter how tough she is and um, enduring the cold and then having fun through the hikes and everything. Um, just uh, crazy cool to be able to spend that quality time with my kids. Um, I sure love it and and uh, just want to share it with you guys. So that'll be a, a, like maybe a short podcast coming up and uh, then into my muley season. Um, man, I've got a couple tags and, and uh, November and December to kind of chase muleys around. And, um, you know, going with my daughter again, it just makes me realize how tough it's going to be to arrow a good mature buck you know it's some of this hunting will be done during a general rifle season wearing orange and i'm just um i so love getting close and trying to arrow these things and arrow mature buck so i can't wait rut's just getting ready to kick off i tired need to get my work done and then um shoot out of here uh next weekend for another three four day or see what i can do and then um got some family showing up got my uncle and my cousin both drew tags this year got my dad and my uncle have another tag I'm thinking about maybe trying to do a backpack trip with my dad here next weekend. So just a lot of great hunting coming up. Uh, you know, I'm kind of missing that warm weather bow hunting, but it's just that cold weather season, good action, good muley rut action. And so, um, yeah, put on my big boy pants and um, cruising country and, and uh, looking for a big dark horn rutted up buck. It's so much fun. So fortunate. So uh, going to be doing that along with getting some work done and the podcast done and uh, hanging out with the family here. So, um, man, it's all good from my side. Um, just more fortunate than I deserve, that's for sure. So uh, thanks for all the support, you guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll check in with you later this week, maybe early next week. We'll get you another podcast out. So, um, yeah, thanks again for all the support.